But we begin this evening with World War II. The Irish Free State has received the usual advance warning from Germany, and the armed forces of Southern Ireland are on guard day and night. We have seen again and again that when Hitler intends to attack a neutral, he first makes accusations that the prospective victim has failed to observe the rules of neutrality. A recently published book reveals a lot about Ireland's role in the conflict by drawing on the first-hand recollections of the people involved. It's called Ireland's Secret War, Dan Bryan, G2 and the Lost Tapes that Reveal the Hunt for Ireland's Nazi Spies. The author is Mark McMenamin, who joins me now. Mark has previously written about Richard Hayes, the director of the National Library, who was instrumental in breaking a number of German codes during the war. He spent the emergency working to decrypt the Goethe cipher, a Nazi code that had stumped many of the greatest code-breaking minds at Bletchley Park. Richard Hayes is just one of the voices in an extraordinary archive of taped interviews telling the untold history of World War II in Ireland from the point of view of the main protagonists. For example... The Americans were building bases in Derry and Northern Ireland as civilians. And I suppose what they were building at the time were facilities for the British. That's the voice of Irish spymaster Dan Bryan, describing how the Americans, under civilian guise and in anticipation of joining the Allied war effort, built military bases in Northern Ireland. At Derry because the convoys and all that kind of thing and the destroyers were coming into Germany. And the audio tapes that formed the basis of the book spent the better part of 50 years basically gathering dust after they had been used in an attic in uh, California. Tell us how you came across this extraordinary archive. Well, Miles, it goes back, I suppose, to the aftermath of my first book, Codebreaker, and there was some interest in perhaps doing some sort of a project on the life of Hayes, be it TV, radio, probably a radio series, something like that. And I had it in the back of my mind that there must be some sort of an archive somewhere in the world of audio tapes. I don't know why it was just maybe an intuition or something. There was a book called The Shamrock and the Swastika that was written by uh, Carol J. Carter, which I consulted in the, the basis of the research for Codebreaker. That particular book had been used primarily using oral histories. So the, the, the research was based on oral histories because a lot of the archives had actually had been opened at that particular point in time. Uh, a lot of them, particularly, say, the, the MI, the KV series, the MI5 files in London opened much later. So she, Carol didn't have access to a lot of these sources at the time, so she had literally really to go to the horse's mouth, all right, to get the information. And I contacted um, San Jose State University, contacted the library because they had uh, a section in the library called the Charles Burdick Military Collection. Now, Burdick was a, a great authority on the Second World War and an expert in the Avwehr, which was the intelligence branch of the, of the Wehrmacht. I decided perhaps there must be something in the archive here. This could be an avenue to find something. And I got in, in contact with uh, somebody in the archive there, a lovely woman named Carly. And she said that they had mainly kind of um, posters and memorabilia and things like that. That, but they didn't have any uh, archive tapes and suggested that perhaps I talk to Professor Carter herself. Now, I was delighted to hear this because I thought, God, it must be difficult to find Professor Carter. The book had been written in, I think, 1970, so it was a long time ago. I was put in contact with Carol by email. I decided then to give her a call. She gave me her, her, her phone number and she was just thrilled that somebody was interested in her research and she said of course you must come to California and I was absolutely you know I was thrilled I said I will come to California and then the world comes to a screeching halt as we all know and I couldn't travel to California I said I have to get I have to get my hands on these tapes so I said to Carol I wonder could you 
could you catalogue these or could you just tell me what's there? You know, so she said, absolutely. You know, that'd be really fun was the actual words she used. And uh, she, because they were, there was a shelter in place order at the time in, in California and they couldn't leave the house. And she said, this will keep me busy. So she went back into, into, her, into her attic. She went through the tips. She catalogued everything and she sent me a complete list of everything that was and there. And your hair turned white overnight. And it turned white overnight, yeah, you know. And uh, so, so we, I said, I have to get my hands on these. But how do you how do you get your hands on tapes in the middle of you know an old box of tapes in the middle of a of a global pandemic you know so I I asked my friend Liam O'Brien Liam uh, series producer of the Doc on One and 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 Liam we, we kind of arranged a plan to get the old tapes digitised in San Francisco and they came across over the uh, over the internet and uh, I remember the first day opening the uh, the first sound file up and it was it was just amazing. Mm. Thirty three hours of tapes. Yeah, al- almost up to thirty three. Yeah, 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 incredible stuff. And the bulk of the ta- these are interviews that she did back in the late sixties when she was writing the book Sham- the Shamrock and the and the Swastika. The bulk of the interviews are with Colonel Dan Bryan, very very important man. Tell me who he was. Well, Dan Bryan is a hugely influential uh, figure in twentieth century. Irish history, but he's not very well known to most people. In fact, if people know him at all, they know him from his role in the War of Independence. And, you know, he subsequently took the pro-treaty side. Um, He was involved, actually, in Bloody Sunday. Uh, He was a spotter on Bagot Street Bridge. But he doesn't come to prominence really until the war. He works his his way up through uh, the ranks of G2 of the intelligence branch of the army. Uh, He eventually uh, takes the role of deputy director and eventually director of intelligence. He was born in Goran in County Kilkenny at the turn of the century. He was a medical student in Dublin. And I suppose when I talk to Carol, when I talk to people that have met him, people like uh, Professor Unan O'Halpin, who has met him, you know, anyone that knew Dan Bryan said that he was the most wonderful man. He had a fantastic personality and a great capacity to get on with other people and to listen, you know, to take things in. And I think that's very important when you have to be in a, mm-hmm. an intelligence operative. He maintained all the relationships he had with everybody throughout the revolutionary period. And like he stayed friends with people that were on the, the anti-treaty side which is very, very important because there's no point, I suppose, in knowing what's going on with the people that you agree with. It's the people that you disagree with, uh, you know, that's important. But he kept all these contacts and he was able to see what was happening on the ground, who was talking to who in the country. And most importantly of all, in, in the build-up into the outbreak of the Second World War, he was probably the one person that saw the woods from the trees. He saw the looming threat of fascism for what it was and he was able to see that Ireland could be exploited that there could be elements, particularly, say, in, uh, within the IRA, that could be used as a fifth column and in their naivety probably used, you know, to the advantage of the Germans. And he set about a plan. He, he pens a, a memo, um, Fundamental Factors Affecting Irish Defence, that sets out all the strategic vulnerabilities within the country at the time and how vulnerable we really were on the periphery of Europe. And you have to remember, this is all happening, you know, later on when the war builds up, you you have really you know England standing alone, France is the, the fall of France, and 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 we're there vulnerable on the edge of Europe. So you know the, a lot of the strategic defences were built up 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 until 1939, largely uh, on Brian's writings. And then of course he maintained a very important security link with uh, with MI5 with Guy Liddell, who is the head of the Ireland desk at MI5, looking after Ireland. And may or may not have been a mole, but we won't go into that today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, and with the Americans. So this is important then that there's a security relationship there and sharing information. And that's why he's so important. OK, other interviewees were James Power and James O'Donovan. 
two very different people on opposite mm. sides, basically. Who were they? Well, Jim O'Donovan was a very important figure in the in the War of Independence. But by this stage, uh, if you listen to the tapes, I suppose he's kind of left the IRA, you know, and he's kind of giving strategic help. And it's very interesting when you hear the insights, he's kind of nearly giving out about the state of the IRA that has been run into such bad condition. I think one of the quotes on the tape was he said, you can tick off on one hand the amount of men that had brains in the IRA at this period, you know, was one of the things he said. And he was given logistical support. Uh, he, there was trans transmitters you know sent over and he, he he linked up with Berlin he went over and actually made one of the first contacts after meeting a German spy named Oscar Faust who came here and um, he ends up getting involved then with Hermann Goertz and he subsequently leaves the IRA but a very interesting character also common in James Power is one of the interviewees he ran the internment camp in Athlone so he had a major insight into all the German spies that came to Ireland because he was in, in charge of their incarceration he actually um Funny enough, it was one of the things that Carol told me. Carol is a big bridge player, and uh, so was Power. So they they both really hit it off when they met when they met in 1969. Talking about bridge, and Power had played bridge with all the German spies and felt he had really got to to know them when they were in, when they were in costume barracks. His granddaughter would be well known to a lot of listeners today. She's Samantha Power, who would be um, a major aide in the uh, the Obama administration. I think the. Um, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, uh, within the book and within the tapes, of course, an extensive cast of characters—not just the people who are interviewed, but the people who are mentioned. People like uh, Brian, Richard Hayes, uh, subject of your biography. But one of the people who's talked about a lot is somebody whose name you mentioned, Hermann Goertz. Remind us who he was. Uh, Hermann Goertz was a German spy that was uh, dropped into Ireland in 1940. He managed to stay on the loose for 18 months. Now, you know, whether that was kind of by hook or by crook. We, we don't really know. There are a number of theories as to why he kind of remained at large for so long. Some say he just kind of ran into serious good fortune every time the authorities closed in on him. And others say that he was probably let on the loose for long enough so that the intelligence services and the guard, the special branch, could see literally who he was talking to. And there, there's some credence then to that because um, a lot of the people that were involved with them found themselves incarcerated quite quickly, you know, so there mm-hmm. might be something in that. He was sent here with a, with a code, the Gert cipher, which was um, a communication method using enciphering messages. It was one of the most sophisticated in the war. Uh, there was actually uh, the, 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 that sort of style of code there was an entire hut, you know, um, they're called ISO ciphers, intelligence section, Oliver Strachey, after Oliver Strachey in, uh, in Bletchley Park. And there was an entire hut, like, dedicated to trying to break this particular kind of communication. He came here with this code on an operation. It was called Plan Kathleen, which was kind of, it was a, a harebrained kind of a scheme that was devised by a man in Drumcondra called Liam Gaynor. And the, the plan was to try to create military instability in Northern Ireland, you know, to kind of get the IRA involved and then the, the Germans could come in kind of and preemptively, you know, help free Ireland and, and take over Ireland. And now, you know, how likely it was to work, probably not very likely. But this was the plan he came with. He was meant to be dropped into County Tyrone and he ends up being dropped into County Kildare and, and into <laughs> Meath, actually, and then wanders over to Carberry Bog in County Kildare. You know, there's some crazy stories of him, which are actually corroborated in the tapes because, you know, it's so interesting listening to some of the people that knew him. Like one of the stories is that Herman Gertz walked into um, a guard station in Palafuca, you know, and asked for directions to the local IRA, you know. Another one... <laughs> 
Another story is that he walked through Newbridge in the middle of the day in full Luftwaffe regalia, you know? Yeah, so. I, I, I think on the basis of those, you could probably give a lot of credence to the latter theory, which was that they basically strung him along for 18 months to see who he was chatting with <laughs> yeah. and then rounded him up and then rounded up everybody else as well. But let's actually hear Dan Bryan. He's discussing how Gertz was scuppered on his mission by the fact that uh, the IRA were not particularly efficient. He, he also mentions uh, Jim O'Donovan, the IRA leader, who helped established the initial links between the IRA and Nazi Germany just before the outbreak of war in 1939. Two things completely dished Gertz, even though he was loose for 18 months. One was the fact that, the, that there was, as Jonathan said, that there was really no IRA. And Jonathan said that before they had been hunted and harried by the government, particularly after the magazine Fort Reed. That was one reason that Gertz was ineffective. The second reason that he was ineffective was that he never, he never had any effective communication after he landed with the, with the Admiral. Dan Bryan there citing Gertz's lack of communication with Berlin as one of the reasons for his ineffectiveness in Ireland. Now, uh, Bryan covers a lot in these interviews. For example, he gives some fascinating insights into events like the North Strand bombing. Yeah, he talks about the North Strand bombing and it's quite interesting because, funny enough, it comes up in the middle of another conversation with Carol and he kind of changes the subject to talk about it, which I find quite interesting. He kind of interjects in the middle of it and he said uh, that he felt that it was an accident. He said that there was a problem with the radar, that the the, the British were interfering with the, with the radar signals and that the Germans were kind of misdirected and offloaded their bombs over Dublin uh, in, in quite an accidental fashion. Now, that was interesting, but in, a, in an effort to try and, I suppose, corroborate what Brian had said, I looked at Churchill's memoirs, and Churchill actually mentions that. He said, you know, something along the lines of, I think that we got it wrong in Dublin. He mentions that they it, it was this thing called the Battle of the Beams, you know, and they had interfered with, with the radars, they had jammed them, and it misdirected the Germans and sent them over Dublin, and they had to offload bombs here, and they weren't really sure where they were, you know, over the skies. So um, that's an interesting insight that comes from the tapes, uh, and particularly that Brian was kind of keen to get it across. Also, one of the things I think that comes across in the tapes is a little some sort of conflict between the Department of Justice on the one hand and the Department of Foreign Affairs, or they were probably external affairs back then. Uh, uh, so tell me a little bit about that, if you would. Yeah, that's very interesting because the way the way <laughs> the way Brian actually starts that conversation off, I suppose he's, it's it's okay to say it now. He says, "I'll probably be done in the, for the Official Secrets Act for saying this." You know, he says that uh, there was some sort of a kind of a lack of communication or some sort of a beef between the two government departments and he really then in how they handled Gertz after Gertz was arrested and incarcerated and he he laments the fact that he mightn't have been kept up to date as much as he should have been with how fragile Gertz's mental state was and the fact that he felt that he wasn't offered the opportunity to go in and have a, a talk with Gertz and he says in the tapes he said that he would have spoken to Gertz and he would have told him to man up go back to his country get debriefed and that more than likely things would have been okay uh, now, Gertz, and I've, I've looked at documents in the National Archives where, where Gertz is writing, you know, to various government departments looking for clemency and not to be deported because he really sees himself as a big deal 
which he isn't, you know. Mm. He wasn't in charge of a concentration camp. He wasn't involved in any crimes against humanity. He was a kind of a low-level spy who didn't achieve very much. But he thought he was going to be executed when he went back and he, he thought he was going to, He thought he was going to be executed and he actually he actually says, uh, you know, if I go back to Germany, he says this to another German spy, Gunther Schultz, I should like to die like our, like our leaders. And he, he references Hermann Goering there, you know, and, and later transpires that he, he has a cyanide capsule of his own, you know, and uh, so this was his mindset. He, he, he mentions in some of the papers I looked at actually in the National Archive the Spartacist uprising that he'd been involved in that and that uh, you know if uh, the that Russians Rosa Luxemburg and, and Karl Liebknecht yeah in exactly and, and, and he says that if um, you know he'd been involved in the in, in the Wehrmacht uh, in, the, in, in the German army at that point and, and like, he basically says that uh, you know if the, if the Russians get their hands on him they're going to execute him now you know whether he was involved in that or not I, I don't know it's, it's a common characteristic of Goertz's life that he uses poetic license in a lot of different areas to you know exaggerate who he was what he was about you know most likely probably not true you know he was kind of just a bit of a fantasist and kind of a bit of a chancer but uh, he, he really strongly says that you know he's going to get he, he'll be executed he'll be so many things are going to happen to him in reality and there's correspondence from General Lucius Clay, you know, in Berlin and to, to the Department of External Affairs on Goertz's case. I mean, he would have been probably debriefed and they might have probably just let him go. Mm. You Doesn't know? actually sound like somebody who would have made a really good spy, but <laughs> there you go. Um, now, you've also brought in a clip of an interview with Stephen Hayes, who was one of three wartime chiefs of staff of the IRA. Tell us about him. Tell us about his connection with Goertz. Yeah, there was there was three wartime chiefs of staff. Obviously, the most famous uh, would be Sean Russell mm. uh, in his absence, Stephen even uh, Hayes takes over a uh, very well-known kind of in Wexford uh, GAA circles. He, he'd been involved in the War of uh, Independence himself, but was not well-liked within the IRA at that particular time. Uh, a lot of people looked up to Russell and they found Russell was quite a formidable leader and uh, Hayes was kind of put in, in a, you know, was he in charge, was he not in charge? Because Russell had gone to the States first and then Nazi Germany. And then ended up in Nazi Germany. Yeah, he'd gone originally to the States and actually was arrested. There's a famous picture of him. Um, he was arrested when, when the King came to the United States as a kind of a, he was a, a security concern, as you might imagine. So yeah, Hayes takes over. Hayes, Carroll had had met Hayes in Wexford in latter stages of his life, and he he came across and she says to me, and you can hear this in the tapes as kind of like. I suppose someone who's quite naive and hadn't really thought out the gravity of what they were involved in and um, how dangerous Nazi Germany actually was. One of the things he says is that um, all we wanted from all we wanted from Germany was help. We had no interest in them coming in here. You know, I think mm. he says in a hundred years, uh, you know, we'd be still trying to get rid of them. Then, so there's a huge level of naivety, and you know. I suppose it's a thing that people wonder about. They wonder about the intentions of Russell, of people like that. But when you hear Hayes, who was directly involved in that, that sense of naivety really comes across. Well, let's hear a clip of Stephen Hayes talking about his perspective on Hermann Goertz. See, Germany, Germany actually looked like winning the war at that particular period as he was here, mm-hmm. in the early stages. Yeah. We were more or less interested in if they were winning the war, what kind of a deal we could make with them. Regarding well, commerce, commerce and stuff like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You think you thought that Gertz was not the man for the job? You said. I don't think so. You don't think he was? Because he he didn't understand. First of all, he didn't understand. He'd be like you coming here as a stranger. You wouldn't understand no probably a lot of stuff I'd mentioned to you. Mm-hmm. He'd, like you, he wouldn't understand this thing about the Irish Army and the IRA and. 
It is pleasant to anybody, you know. Sure. Right. But, like, our end of it was revolutionary, and he he described it as what they call it as uh, cups and cups and rubbers to paint the stuff that we were playing. <laughs> and that was the voice there of uh, Stephen Hayes. And uh, as you say, Hayes goes on then in that interview to compare the Germans and the British. Yeah, he goes on to compare the Germans and the British and like there's some great insights into the mindset of some of the, the Republicans that collaborated with the, with, with Nazi Germany in this period. Uh, one of the really interesting things I actually found was Hayes um, talks about Russell and he talks about Frank Ryan and uh, he compares um, Russell to Patrick Pierce and he compares Frank Ryan to James Connolly and, uh, and he said, you know, he said uh, Russell was a revolutionary. He just wanted the British out. That's all he wanted, you know, whereas he had no interest in anything else, you know, in politics or anything else, whereas, you know, Ryan, Ryan was a thinking man, you know, Ryan was like Connolly. He knew what the country would be like when we got the British out and this is the kind of insight so that was very interesting and now it's incredible to think people like Brian and Hayes were both born around the turn of the century and were both active during the revolutionary period. That's one of the most interesting things is like you have these people that are on all different sides of the conflict. Brian trying to round up the IRA, trying to round up German spies, etc. Then you have Hayes, Russell and these other guys who are seeing the opportunity maybe to take back the North using Germany as a vehicle. And it's very hard to believe that they were all 20 odd years, maybe less than 20 odd years beforehand, all fighting on the one side and all, all comrades. So that's incredibly interesting. And yeah, uh, it's very easy for us to kind of look at that today when we have distance, but like when it was so close to that particular time. And for people to have just such different viewpoints and such different ideologies, for Brian to say, yes, you know, I will work with the British, I will work with the Americans, and, and that will ultimately prove to be beneficial to the country. Whereas others say, you know, no, we shouldn't do that. And, um, and that schism or that division, you know, that's not necessarily just between the IRA and the Defence Forces. That divide is within the defence forces too. You know, there are people that disagree very passionately with what Brian is doing, even speaking to uh, the uh, the British security forces. Okay, you brought one final clip, Dan Brian telling a story, and we're back to the pastime of bridge here. You mentioned it already, uh, relating to an American serviceman based, obviously, in Northern Ireland, and he says American servicemen were known to come down to Dublin and uh, eat steaks, get drunk, and that kind of thing. But one of them went on a rampage. Do you know what happened once? There was a bridge conference in Dublin. Oh, this was during the war, I think. Uh, this was after America came into the war. An American soldier came down here from Northern Ireland, got a lot of drink, ran amok, assaulted and knifed one of the people at the tournament. Mm -hmm. And before he was arrested, was on the way back to the border. I mean, I think he was simply pushed back by the police. But he very seriously, he might have murdered him. I mean, he was mad with drink. But this was never put in the papers. But there was people from all over Ireland at the tournament. And the, this man who should be playing at the tournament went, was sent to a hospital. Everybody at the tournament knew about the incident. Uh, they went home to their hometowns all over Ireland and told, told everybody. <laughs> told everybody, and of course, it lo it lost nothing in the ten. No, I can't and imagine. you see, it it also caused people to say, "Oh, you'd never know what was going on." Sure, if that wasn't in the paper, God knows what was. But I, I this this you see is an interlude, but it, it you know it shows the kind of thing that went on. 
the voice there of Dan Bryan. Bridge as a very dangerous contact sport and American GIs overpaid, overbridged and over here. But what's interesting there is what he says at the end, the level of cynicism that would be induced by the fact that a lot of people were aware of what had gone on never got into the papers. Yeah, never got into the papers. So, you know, that's the censorship that was there and they had to they had to maintain the idea that Ireland was strictly neutral and that there was, you know, no presence of anybody here. And you know, that's interesting and then as well with the border with Northern Ireland that they were they were kinda of coming over and back, you know. And and Brian alludes to in the tapes as well, you know, that the, the Americans have been in Northern Ireland well prior to uh, Pearl Harbor. They had been uh, coming over and building ba- uh, bases particularly in Derry for British destroyers uh, under civilian guise and and Brian maintains in the tapes that it was in anticipation of joining the war so that's incredibly interesting as well Mm. Okay, it's a fascinating archive. Uh, we've just scratched the surface of what is in those 33 hours or thereabouts of tapes and uh, no doubt it'll make an incredible radio series uh, someday. I hope so. <laughs> a lot of material there. We look forward to that one. Uh, the book inspired by these tapes is called Ireland's Secret War, Dan Bryan, G2 and the Lost Tapes that Reveal the Hunt for Ireland's Nazi Spies. It's published by Gill Books. The author is my guest, Mark McMenamin. Mark, thank you very much for joining thank you, us. Thank you, Thank you.